Hello everyone and welcome to Beyond the Degree, a podcast where we chat with accomplished and interesting University of Toronto alumni to learn more about their career and time at U of T. My name is Talal and I'm a second year math student at the my University na- of Toronto. My name is Angad and I'm a second year Rockman Commerce student. Today's guest is Mohammed Sawaf, the CEO and co-founder of Manzil Capital, an Islamic financing and investing company that helps Canadians participate in so-called halal investments. Manzil has recently been inducted into the Holt Accelerator, a renowned startup accelerator based out of Montreal. Mohammed completed his undergraduate studies in biology at the University of Toronto and later completed his MBA at the Rotman School of Management. He is currently pursuing his doctorate in business administration at the Henley Business School, where his thesis is centered on the steps Canada needs to take to replicate the UK's Islamic finance industry. Mohammed, we're glad to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. Um, so one really I- interesting thing Talal told me about you was how you studied biology yeah. <laughs> during undergrad, and now you're into entrepreneurship and finance. So we'd want to learn more about why did you pick U of T in the first place and why biology? Yeah, so um, if, if you know anything about Middle Eastern parents, um, they really focus on having their kids become doctors. <laughs> I think it's a South, South Asian slash Asian yeah. thing too. Um, you know, but, you know, I, I think if I go back to high school, you know, and the courses that I was taking, it was very focused on math and science. And that kind of led to, you know, being accepted into the art, like the life sciences program here at U of T. Um, why U of T? Uh, I, I think back then, like I was, I was a kid out of Parkdale. Like we, we didn't grow up with with, with big means, and uh, you know, for us, U of T was the the big thing, right? It was also local, so you know, I couldn't afford to be on residence, even though I got into schools like Waterloo and Queens and McMaster. Um, but it just wasn't what uh, wasn't uh, you know going to be be financially you know um, available uh, for us. So and then of course my mom bribed me with like food and like doing my laundry and stuff like that. So <laughs> I was like, okay, fine, I'll go. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, and and it was a very tough program. Uh, I was also working full time and on weekends. Wow. And uh, yeah, there was, you know, when in the life science program, it's like 35 hours a week commitment, you know, between classes, between tutorials, between labs. And so you like the life skills you get out of just being, you know, managing time, managing time management skills, you know, working under pressure of deadlines. Like, you know, we had deadlines sometimes where it's like you have two essays today, an exam and a lab that you need to submit. And you know, no professor cared about what other classes you had. It was just about like, well, this is my class and this is the way, you know, our deadlines work and everyone's deadlines seemed to match everyone else's. It was like you always had five things due at the same time. Um, and so, yeah, you you know, the, the, the interpersonal skills, the communication skills, the, the, the team working skills, the independent skills that you just all the soft skills that you've, you, you built through that four year program is kind of really what set me up for you know, where I am today, I would say. And where were you working full time, you said? Uh, well, it was just hospitality jobs, right? So I, w- I would be working at convention centers in like the food stands. Um, I'd work at banquet halls, just like setting up, uh, you know, weddings and, and stuff like that. Uh, restaurants, you know, bus as a bus boys, you know, dishwasher uh, as a waiter. Uh, you know, just whatever would, would, you know, keep me busy. And, and, you know, usually hospitality, you can always get those later shifts yeah. versus like the ones during the day. 
Um, so it was never like a nine to five type job. It was always like, okay, I come in at like six to 12 or sometimes I do overnights like 12 to six, um, you know, all, all, and, you know, also volunteering at some of the hospitals, um, That's... you know, early mornings just to get in a, a two, three hours just to kind of see what life would be like, you know, working at some of the hospitals if I were to ever get into, the, you know, the medical field. Wow. That's, that's on top of your schoolwork that's that that's a lot of extra work and responsibility it took on yeah especially in the life side program because i also know a lot of people who like go are going and who've gone through that yeah like i think i think after engineering it's the toughest right Um, probably from a from a course load uh and we i had a lot of friends that transferred out Right. Like after first year, it was just too much. And, you know, they would end up in commerce yeah. <laughs> or just normal arts and sci. Right. Yeah. Uh, like a political science program or economics program or stuff yeah. like that. And, and yeah, you mentioned that the soft skills you kind of picked up throughout your undergrad sort of set you up for what you're doing now or along the lines of what you're doing now. I'm wondering if you pick those up through your interactions in uni or more so during your jobs or your part-time jobs? Yeah, I'd say it would have to be a mix of both because like even till today, I consider myself an introvert uh, and people are like, no, like that's impossible. Like Mohammed, you're so, you know, social and bubbly. And I'm just like, yeah, but that's just because I have to be right. <laughs> but like if you were to put me in a room alone, I'd be completely satisfied and content with that environment and I'd be focused. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, being in hospitality, you kind of have there's that customer service right or that you're oriented to that you kind of build up and you know in university it's it's a matter of you know your interactions with your peers uh it's it's kind of a little bit of like that networking thing like you know who you want to align yourself with uh that are aligned kind of to your goals and to how you do things and sometimes you're just forced into situations where there's group work and you have to just figure that out right so uh, I'd say it's a mix of both, um, both kind of forced, you know, you're, you're forced to get out of your comfort zone. And that's where, you know, most people will either thrive or just die uh, because they just don't feel comfortable uh, being out of their comfort zone. Um, but I knew that this is something that I had to kind of overcome. And, you know, slowly but surely, you know, even into the, you know, the, the, the jobs that I got after my undergrad, you know, being in sales and BD, you know, you get out of your shell even more and more. And then you just basically like, it just becomes part of you. Interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. And uh, you're, so right now you're heavily involved in, in finance and Islamic finance, but I'm sure uh, the state of the stage at which you're at, at which you, you find yourself right now, I'm sure it started somewhere and I'm wondering what got you interested in, in finance in general and then later Islamic finance. And how did the work you did after undergrad, you said you did sales and business development. Yeah. How did that sort of help you transition into entrepreneurship and finance? Yeah, so um, I, I got into I got into like financial services right after undergrad and it was 2007. So it was like it was like peak markets. And kind of the timing was there in the sense that there was just available availability of jobs in that sector. Um, and so that's why it was kind of easy for me. But like I look back even to my high school days and I was like, you know, I was always interested in the business section of the newspapers. And that was kind of like what I would just generally read. And I always had a strong knack for math. 
Um, not necessarily like finance math, but just math in general, which, you know, helps within corporate finance. And so, you know, when I got, you know, uh, my first position as a financial advisor, it was actually 100% commission based position. Okay. Right. So, you know, that was a tough sell to my parents, of course, because it was like, <laughs> well, why don't you just work at a bank? And, you know, I was like, yeah, but like there's like so I, I've always seen myself as that risk taker. I'm saying like, you know, I could I think I can do more. I think I'm, I'm, I'm capable of doing more. And so that's kind of my first taste of entrepreneurship. But like. It wasn't like full blown entrepreneurship because it was it was still in a structured environment. Uh, you know, I was being taught, I was being mentored, and it was just like, okay, do these tasks, which would be like, you know, call a hundred people a day randomly out of the phone book and try and get a meeting, and you know that was part of my daily cadence, right? Yeah. And you know, the other time was spent on like you know developing a business plan or like uh, pitch decks and stuff like that. And then, you know, you start to get your first client and then you build that on into dozens of clients and eventually hundreds of clients. Uh, and so that's where kind of sales and BD and, and entrepreneurship tied into that. Um, and then specifically on the Islamic finance side, you know, I got the first taste of what those concerns were within the community because I was trying to attract that same community uh, to my book of business. And I was always getting pushback because they were saying, well, you know, we want Islamically compliant products. And I was like, well, what is that? Like, I don't even know what that is. I didn't even know it was a thing. And then, you know, I started to do some research and I was like, oh, okay, well, let's see if there are any. And then, you know, you, you look at kind of what's available to you within, you know, the companies that you work for. And you're like, okay, well, they don't have anything that's compliant. And these guys don't have anything that's compliant. You know, this other company, maybe they have something there. Well, they don't have anything there. And you're like, well, there's nothing. <laughs> and then uh, and, and that's kind of what basically got me started into doing some more research, you know, continued studies, uh, and then eventually into this doctorate degree uh, to basically say, well, how do we structure these products? Are they compliant within a regulatory environment like this, which hasn't changed and, and doesn't look to be changed in the future? And so how can we kind of develop something that, you know, is a square peg, but, you know, we're forcing it down a round hole, right? Uh, and, you know, that's, that's where we're here today. So we, we've done that. Awesome. And I think that's how a lot of the best startups begin. It's someone working in, the, in a specific industry gets domain-specific knowledge, yeah. sees a problem in that industry, sees there's no solution present for it, and then knowing as you did about the financial services industry, you knew your user well. And so yeah, you solve that problem. Yeah, there's a term for that. And that's it's called like founder market fit. Okay. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I've, I've been, I guess people have said that a lot about kind of this initiative is that, you know, the background fits kind of what the initiative is. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there's something to be said about that because it's, it's all about de-risking the model, right? So... Uh, you know, usually there's there's founders that will explore something new for the first time, uh, and you know there, there's a high risk or a, or a low probability of success as a result of that. And sometimes it works out, which is fine, and sometimes it doesn't. But you know, uh, with most founders, you know they usually have domain experience, uh, either from a previous position or previous um, you know uh, jobs or careers that they've held and established. And they're now leveraging that to that say, too. well, 
there was a gap in the industry, in the industry. so we're going to disrupt it absolutely yeah. exactly right and so they move forward with that one interesting thing i noticed is you you call yourself an introvert but in your first job you it was purely commissions based and you had to do 100 cold calls you said yeah how did you go about that and how did you transition from being an introvert to well it, it was a challenge because every time i tried i picked up that phone it was like a brick <laughs> i didn't want to pick it up but i had to force myself to right and um you know, it, I think I think there's a, there's something to be said about having that mentality or that that mental mindset to uh, like a strong mental mindset to tell yourself like I need to do this because this is gonna help me move forward and push my career uh, and it's and it's that constant inner battle about like what you're comfortable doing and what you're not comfortable doing and the more you can get yourself to be uncomfortable the further ahead you can get with, uh, you know, the task at hand or the problem set. Um, so I, I think it's really just an inner mental battle that you have to kind of just overcome. Mm-hmm. And was it one of those things where, you know, it's very hard to actually like, pick up the phone or actually engage in the call, but then once you're in it, you're, you, kind yeah. of, you kind of find your you're always you're, Yeah, you're always trying to overcome that first fear, right? And so, you know, you pick it up, and then sometimes I would just be like, you know, I, I hope it goes to voicemail. I hope it goes to voicemail. <laughs> and then they, they answer, right? And you're like, oh, you're, you're thrown off guard, right? And then, you, yeah. you, you know, you have your script and, you know, you're basically getting into your script. And then you get a little bit more comfortable and you're like, oh, that wasn't too bad, right? And even though it was a no, but it was like nice, right? And then it's like, okay, well, and then you start, you start to shift your mindset to be like, well, you know, if, if we're working with the law of large numbers and, you know, there's a 1% rate of or chance of, of people saying, yes, I'm willing to meet you and, and discuss more, you know, okay, well, am I going to get the first yes on the first call or am I going to get it on the hundredth call, call, right? And so, like, you start to you work towards that and you're like, okay, well, I've, I've done 50 calls now, like, I'm getting closer, right? So you start to do those objectives or, like... You 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 do like very like simple things like you know I have a hundred M and M's and I get to eat one every time I make a call and you know the closer I get to finishing my M and M's the closer I get to go home right <laughs> and the closer I am to getting that one yes hopefully right and sometimes you get more than one yes and but like if you if you track your stats overall like it ends up being one percent over a longer period of time so everything regresses back to the mean mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Anga, do you feel like uh, in enrollment especially because networking is a big part of it, a big part of the program, do you feel like people feel the same way about networking? I do think so. Networking is one of those, it, it's a very similar thing where you sort of force yourself to go there, you force yeah. yourself to make those conversations. But I think sale, like to actually develop sales skills, I, I don't think that networking or case competitions is the best way. I would say actually doing sales, mm. like cold calling, or maybe like working at an enterprise SaaS company. I think I think that would be the best way to develop sales skills and really understand how to operate in a business environment. Yeah, like like there's no there's no question that that uh, skill is is a very valuable skill. Um, and if you can get that while you're studying, that's fantastic. But most of the time, it doesn't happen. And, and I do feel that, like, because I've, I've, I've lectured at Rotman, um, you know, for corporate finance and other business schools. Um, and I always feel that the, the networking piece as a student is always undervalued, right? Or it's not like a priority. 
when I think it should be a huge one, uh, especially earlier on, right? Um, I've seen it at the MBA level, right? Like people don't want to network and they just think that the red carpet's going to get rolled out to them with a six-figure salary and it just doesn't work like that. Yeah. Uh, like you really need to network you need to you need to get yourself involved with these um you know institutions because at the end of the day everyone's fighting for the same position and so you have to basically you know bring yourself out there and and make yourself look unique because everyone's got the same degree everyone's got a 4.0 gpa everyone's done the case competitions so what else do you have at the end of the day and it's also a process you're sort you're selling yourself to whoever you're talking yeah. to and you're kind of like laying out all your skills and uh, like ambitions and and you have to you have to come across as a likable person as well uh, yeah not not only that but like you, you're selling yourself like i you, like i find myself today with with menzo is i'm constantly selling, selling myself right i'm selling myself i'm selling the company i'm selling the vision the mission like what we're about uh, so like it's it's either we're you know we're we're selling or we're negotiating like <laughs> it's it's just constantly that's what's happening and I think you know undergrads need to like look at that for themselves a lot earlier and not just wake up one day and say I've graduated now what do I do yeah, yeah. right what are the connections you built along the way who can you reach out to and be like hey remember we talked a year ago we had a coffee now I'm ready right can we follow up with a coffee and whatever right yeah. so and speaking of menzo can you just uh go over a summary of what exactly menzo does and what islamic financing is because I'm, you said it yourself like before you researched and yeah. before you uh, began your research into islamic financing especially in canada it's kind of this vague thing you uh that, that was hard to understand or or, or people didn't uh have enough uh, necessary resources to understand yeah. it and yeah so if you can explain that for us and our listeners that, that yeah so so islamic finance is not a, a unknown phenomenon like it's pr- practiced um in many countries around the world um especially in the middle east north mm. africa southeast asia um and you know the most prominent western example is the uk Um, So the UK established kind of a framework uh, to allow the adoption of Islamic finance in 2003. Since then, they have now five full-fledged Islamic banks, 20 Islamic finance institutions. It's the fastest growing um, market or industry in all of the other industries in the UK. It's growing at about 7.5% a year. Uh, And it's about a $5 billion industry. Globally, Islamic finance is a $2.4 trillion industry, uh, and it's set to double actually over the next couple of years. So it's just an unknown thing in Canada because nobody's adopted it, right? In North America. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. North America, generally speaking. And and what is it at the end of the day? Like, like there's there's some key principles that we need to follow. Uh, One of them, the main the main one being uh, the prohibition of interest. Right. So. You know, as Muslims, we can't pay or receive interest. Uh, And that doesn't mean that, well, if I'm an institution, how do I make money? Because like, yeah, most of the time we make money off of interest and fees. Mm -hmm. And it's just it's just a matter of structuring the product differently. Right. So it's not about the outcome, because if you look at a conventional product and an Islamic financial product, the outcomes are exactly the same. It's really about the process and how we got there. And the best example I can give you is if I were to put like a non-halal steak in front of you 
and a halal steak in front of you. And I said, pick one, pick the one that's halal. They're like, I don't know. They look the same, right? They're both medium rare. They look pretty good. I'll eat, I'm going to eat them. But then I say, well, this is the halal one. You're going to say, well, what makes this halal? And I say, well, it's the process, right? The way it was slaughtered, the blood drained, it was blessed. You know, that's the difference, right? And so Islamic finance is no different. And, you know, it's not just about the prohibition of interest, but speculation, right? So uncertainty and speculation in the contract. So, um, you know, are the terms defined? Are there clear? Is, 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 are there, is there clarity and transparency with respect to the agreement that you're entering into? Um, is there also an asset behind the transaction? This is one of the main key elements, right? And you say, well, why, why does that matter? Uh, it matters. It may not matter now, but if we look at academic studies that have looked at Islamic financial institutions versus conventional financial institutions and what happened in 2008, the Islamic financial institutions fared better only because they were not as levered, right? A lot of their instruments were asset backed mm -hmm. and hence uh, the risk and the volatility was a lot less compared to their conventional counterparts. Uh, and so, you know, what we're bringing to Canada is nothing new from a, from a, uh, you know, a practice perspective. It's just that it's never been done before. And we needed to, we needed to adapt it to the regulatory environment of Canada because there hasn't been this position from a federal uh, government that said, yeah, we're open to this and we're willing to accommodate, right? So there's been... A lot of uh, legal issues, uh, tax issues, um, you know, as well as, you know, Bank Act, Interest Act, Mortgage Act stuff that we've had to overcome uh, in order for this prop, uh, for this um, product to be uh, just as competitive as its conventional counterpart. And at what stage is uh, Manzil right now? Have you all launched? Have you all raised funding? Mm -hmm. uh, when do you all plan on launching if you all haven't? Yeah, so we actually got in market um, earlier this month. Wow, um, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. So we've, we've spent the last two years uh, building out operations and infrastructure, um, licensing, um, everything to do with uh, you know structuring the product itself, not only from a legal perspective, but making sure that it's compliant with the Sharia standards and our Sharia board. Uh, we earlier this year we raised a seed round of about 1.15 million, um, so that was uh, wow. pretty cool, um, you know, and kind of validated that you know we were in an opportunity that was underserved slash unserved. Um, this is pretty blue ocean, I would say, if you've ever done an MBA and studied blue ocean theory, uh, it's you know it's untapped, particularly in Canada. Uh, and so, you know, Holt Accelerator uh, mm -hmm. came along and that was a really good program. We're just wrapping that up actually literally right now. Um, and that kind of led to us also getting into 111, which is a, a kind of another scale up space uh, based here in Toronto. Uh, and so, you know, one opportunity has led to another and it's kind of been starting to snowball. Uh, and yeah, so our efforts are now shifting towards, you know, more marketing, more BD, you know, onboarding uh, the investors into our halal uh, mortgage income fund, uh, which acts as our lending vehicle for our mortgage product, right? And so once we start to execute on that model, it now just becomes, well, how do we scale this and, and grow it as fast as possible? And, and then start to look at, you know, um, expanding into other provinces across Canada, as well as, you know, expanding the product shelf itself. That's, that's very cool. And uh, so Menzel helps uh, Canadians invest in uh, 
finance an islamic financial product yes and i'm wondering are, are these products offered by islamic institutions or does menzel help with or or is it menzel's job to structure them in such a way yeah so uh we're actually the product manufacturer okay. as as it would be said in the industry right so um so just to give you like a, a quick example right sure. so you know there are uh like in the in the investment world um people can create products and sell them themselves or other people will sell them on your behalf and we call those kind of distribution partners mm -hmm. right and so uh, you know if you were working at let's say you know td in the wealth uh wealth management group you'd, you'd sell a bmo etf right so bmo is the one that structured the etf product but made it available for everyone to sell right mm -hmm. uh, and so you know track record and r rates of returns and history and all that stuff is kind of what goes into the decision making and then of course obviously the, the client and what they're looking for uh, and so we've done something very similar. So we've structured the product. You can access it through us directly, or you can access it through one of our distribution partners, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, it is the only Sharia compliant income uh, fund in Canada. Uh, you know, there are other, um, you know, funds out there that are focused more on the equity side. Uh, but we come on the fixed income side because that's, the hardest thing to do nobody's been able to crack that nut so to speak and and it complements uh not only the diversification strategy but balancing out kind of that risk volatility of that portfolio too and so you said that islamic financing and investing is uh is is prevalent in the uk especially yes. out of out of the western countries and your your thesis is about how how canada can uh adopt the UK's model for Islamic finance. Yes. Is that correct? That's correct. And I'm just wondering what, what that looks like in Canada on a, on a countrywide basis to adopt the uh, UK's model. Yeah, so uh, I, th I think the number one thing is that uh, there needs to be political will. Okay? okay, so there needs to be political will from, I'd say mainly the federal government, um, which would trickle down into... Uh, provincial governments or provincial regulated entities because like we don't have uh, a national regulated body right uh, we have provincials uh, you know the OSC the Ontario Securities Commissions you know the BCSC mm -hmm. the AMF in Quebec um, everyone has their own jurisdiction which is provincial and the UK did had that before they amalgamated had this one overseeing body um, and then from that, they created kind of a, a task force or a task group focused on the adoption or the uh, like what rules and regulations would need to be created in addition to right the, the, the conventional regulatory space for Islamic finance. So just to give you an example, it's not just about regulation, but it goes beyond that. It goes it goes actually into the tax system. OK, so in the UK. Uh, you know, there's many Islamic financial structures because of this asset-backed or asset-based uh, um, transaction. Uh, you may get yourself involved in a, a multiple or double taxation situation. So in a Morabaha transaction or a credit sale model, you know, I'd have to buy the asset, it'd have to be owned by me, and then I'd have to sell it back to you. So I'd pay, pay tax because I owned it once and now I'm selling it back to you and you have to pay tax and you have to pay more tax because I'm selling it to you for a higher amount. Mm -hmm. 
So in Canada, we have something similar, where, you know, at least in real estate, it's called double land transfer tax. Um, and, uh, you know, this is something that we can't avoid, right? Like we can't just go to the government and be like, hey, you know, we want to create this new product, but we, we want you to exempt us from this. And, you know, that's a battle and a half, right? Uh, and I'm just one guy, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like the whole country is asking for something like this. And like, again, again, there's no political will, right? So if it was coming from up top, it'd probably be easier. It's a top-down approach that allow all these uh, regulatory bodies to adopt it. We're like a bottoms-up approach, which is even worse and, and a lot harder or a bigger challenge to, to accomplish. And so what we've devised is basically a proprietary model that uh, accomplishes, you know, all of, you know, the, the same outcome without having to you know, have double end transfer tax or capital gains tax issues and even potential HST issues, right? So that's why it took us about 15 months just to structure this one product back and forth between our legal and audit teams uh, and liaising, you know, that information with our Sharia board. Um, and it was truly like a battle, right? Because, you know, you have one side saying, well, what the Sharia board's asking for is illegal, like it can't be done. And the Sharia board will come back and say, well, what you're doing is non-compliant. <laughs> so you're straddling both sides and managing, you know, this kind of stakeholder relationship uh, until you find a working model. And it really takes an outside of the box thinking to get there. One thing I'm interested in learning more about is how you manage your time. You're running a multi-million dollar startup and you're doing a PhD as well. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit more about how your day-to-day -day looks like? Um, how much sleep do you get? And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you, you know what? I didn't know um, I didn't know what my capacity was until I did the MBA at Rotman. And I did the executive program, right? So you know it's a 14 month program. And, you know, they don't tell you this when you get in, right? But, like, now that I've done it and I look back on it, I'm like, man, I did 23 courses. I did 78 assignments, like, including exams, essays, you know, uh, projects. Like, so there was, like, one to two deliverables per week. You know, plus I, w I wasn't doing startup world, right? Like, I was, I was running my own kind of uh, entrepreneurial operation. And, you know, and, you know... I, I had a baby on the way, you know, I already had a, my first son and managing kind of the familial relationships. I traveled, I think, 14 times that year, uh, like for work and personal and stuff like that. So and then like I, I also saw my business triple that year and I was like this. There's something wrong here because like like I thought <laughs> I, I thought I was busy. Right. But like I'm now busy. And, and I think it's it's really just about. Um, time management. I know it sounds very simple, but like, what is time management? It's it's literally it literally means like squeezing every minute out of every day, and you're also you also become you also start to prioritize, right? What is meaningful to you? What is of value to you? What can uh, you know push you forward with respect to your professional development as well as your um, you know academic development, and then you start to like cut out all the fat. Right. You know, and sometimes that fad is like social gatherings. Right. Other other social activities. Uh, so your 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 mindset focuses towards, well, am I going to do this? And, and is this going to make me productive? And that actually led kind of like that. That was the starting point of me being completely aware of, you know, my calendar, how to use it. You know, what's a priority? What's a value to me? 
what would I, I, I do? Because like when I started the doctorate program, it actually overlapped with my MBA for like a, a couple months. Wow. Yeah. So I was still finishing my MBA. Uh, you had a kid on the way. And my son was just about to be born a couple months later. And we were moving too. <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> crazy. Wow. It was crazy. A, yeah, man. 2015 was like a crazy year. Um, and uh, yeah. And like you just you just basically fit it all in. So like... It's funny because uh, uh, you know Sama, who who works who works with Menzel, he got access to my calendar and he was like, "I didn't know you were this busy. Like <laughs> it's just full, right?" Yeah. And you know, like you see there, you know, there's sometimes there's no time for lunch, uh, and you know, going back to kind of, you know, how much sleep do I get? Yeah, it's uh, sometimes it's four hours, sometimes it's six. Maybe on weekends I get seven or eight, but. Uh, you know, there's there's always things to do. There's always stuff to do. And it's just a matter of how can I just like start to tackle these tasks and get them off my plate because I know more is coming and I have a very busy day ahead of me. And um, and, and when you start to basically think like that, uh, you, 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 you sh- your whole mindset shifts towards, you know, what's important and what's not. Right. And um, and it just becomes habitual. Right. Like you've built this new habit, uh, you know, that you're up early in the morning, you know, you're getting a lot of stuff done. uh, And listen, there's always work to be done. Like it's endless. But you also start to recognize like, okay, when do I start to kind of stop? Because like my brain can't start process anymore, right? So you 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 now start to have this self awareness about your capabilities. Um, what your bandwidth is because I can tell you like there was a point in my life where it was just like yes I'm gonna add this I'm gonna add this I'm gonna add this and then you start to see like you actually can't handle it all right Um, so yeah there was a time where I was teaching four classes in a term I was you know doing my PhD and I was you know doing consulting work and you know working full-time right you know but I soon I started to realize I'm like well that's not ideal because I wasn't putting in, you know, 100% into all of these things, right? So you start to then say, well, if I were to divest some of these things, what is what what can I divest, let go, and it wouldn't really impact, right? Kind of my my, my progress moving forward. And then you start to make those decisions, right? So, uh, you know, I'm not Superman, I'm not a superhuman, Uh, everyone has their limitations on bandwidth with respect to what they can take on. And that's more of a self reflecting, uh, thing that everyone needs to do um, but yeah if you're really if you're really stringent with you know your time and, and how you manage that you, you you'd be surprised how much more you can get done with the same amount of time though because we all have the same quality it's 24 hours in a day right I'm no different than you it's just a matter of what we what we decide to do with our time true and um, so you talk about the importance of self-awareness and managing your time do you have any practices such, such as meditation or mindfulness that you practice every day? Um, how, how are you self-aware and how do you decide this is important to me? I want to put more time here. Yeah. There. Oh, that, that's a huge, huge component of, you know, just staying sane at the end of the day. Because and, and for me, it's, it's in many forms. Right. You know, as a practicing Muslim, you know, sometimes the meditation is prayer. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're obligated to pray five times a day. Um, so, you know, that's some form of meditation and some sort of self-reflection and just like, you know, really decompressing and, and kind of, 
um, you know, uh, uh, getting that negative energy out. Sometimes it's in the form of a, of, a, of a silent walk, right? Like I'll walk around the block a couple of times alone. I don't want to talk to anybody. And it's just like you and your thoughts, right? Uh, sometimes it's just like, you know, you're driving in a car and, you know, th that's your form of, you know, self-reflection. And, you know, it's not like you're listening to the radio or anything. It's like, like dead silence, right? But it, so it's, it, it comes in different formats and in different mediums. Uh, and you just have to adapt with the environment that you're in because sometimes you don't have a room like we're in today to be like, I'm going to stay here all day and I'm just going to like exclude myself from the world and hopefully I'm going to figure this thing out. You, so you just have to adapt, right? So it could be in a car. It could be, you know, just to walk around the block. It could be on the subway train, right? Like I, I take, I commute to work. Sometimes you're just left with your thoughts and that kind of prepares you for the day. Uh, or because, you know, in the startup world, you can only move as fast as the decisions that you make. Right. And I've been, uh, you know, I've been in the place where like decisions aren't being made and, the, and we're not moving forward. Like we're not progressing. We were very stagnant. Uh, and so, you know, not that you'll always make the right decisions, but you have to be able to um, have a way to... Uh, basically a process to make those decisions and you need to make those decisions because people are counting or waiting on you to either say let's do it this way let's do it that way let's move ahead or let's you know bring that to the bottom of the pile because it's not a priority at this point right and so uh you know the 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 the, the meditation the self-awareness you know putting yourself in kind of this this silent mode helps to basically clarify those thoughts develop those thoughts uh, and because you don't you don't want to make rash decisions either, right? You don't want to pull the trigger too quickly, and and then you start to say, well, if only I thought about that a, a day longer, maybe I would have had a better outcome. And I always live and die by my decisions, right? I, I tell my team, I said, listen, any decision that I make, I accept full responsibility, whether positive or negative, uh, and and you have to come to terms with that. Mm -hmm. um, re related to self-reflection and you know knowing what to allocate time to a great thing i read recently on sam altman's blog was productivity isn't the quantity of time you work productivity yeah. is more choosing the right thing to work on so even yeah. if you spend a few hours but you're working on the right thing that that accelerates your growth that's most important absolutely and and there's 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 multiple uh opinions uh and i'm sure there's some studies out there that basically say like if you have a task of 10 things to do today like tackle the hardest one first right because you know it's the task that you never want to do as a task you never want to get to um but if you can accomplish that like it really kind of sets the bar and say well i just finish the hardest thing I had to do today. So everything's going to be easier from here on out. Right. Uh, and so, you know, that's another mentality or mindset that people adopt uh, with respect to kind of task completion. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's not just about the quantity of time. It's, it's, it's the problem that you're working on because, uh, you know, sometimes it's like all hands on deck to solve this one issue. And if we can do that, then it opens up the doors towards so many other things and makes life a lot easier. Right. And, and recognizing actually, I think I think a lot of people, um, you know, don't recognize what is the hardest task or the most complicated one that needs that time to be focused on because they just don't understand kind of the magnitude and what that will lead to. Uh, so, you know, there should, there should be some focus and effort on, on that, on like figuring that out too. 
I feel like yeah, self awareness is very important, and I I feel I think we discussed this on an earlier episode as well, and it's especially important to us undergrads because uh, like everyone's uh, stressed out and everyone <laughs> everyone's overwhelmed by heavy mm-hmm. workload, but it's I feel I feel as though it's harder to be self aware at uh, a younger age because Absolutely. we're at, at a lower maturity level. For example, we've been through less less things and yeah than. Uh, our older counterparts have and I'm, I'm wondering like uh, when you were undergrad did you have that level of self-awareness or, <laughs> or or even like try to achieve it because it's it's very daunting for a lot of people yeah to, to think I, that way a hundred percent it wasn't at the level that it was it, it that it was at today um, but I would say that I think I had some sort of self-awareness because like I was an undergrad um, thinking I was gonna go to med school or that was kind of my route and then it was like oh man like there's all these other things i have to do like i wrote my mcat and did horribly and then i'm like okay well do i write them again do i upgrade some of my marks and i'm like yeah but i I really want to work and you know just make money and like i just spent four years and you know so so you have to you, you start to train yourself on on like there's these decisions right about kind of your your career life go back to self-reflection because like how are you going to make those decisions nobody's making them for you it's your life and you know you you start to say to yourself okay well is there like is there a sign that i can like wait for or look for or feel is it a gut feeling um or are you just being being like no like i'm just gonna whatever go with the flow and sometimes that, that that's not methodical enough right uh you know as a millennial, technically, right? Uh, you know, they're, they're like, oh yeah, like, you know, they just, you know, fly by the seat of your pants and just, you know, you go with the flow, you don't really care. And sometimes, you know, it, it, all it takes sometimes is just like that awareness to say, you know what, let me just step back, right? I'm not going to make a decision today. I don't have to make a decision today. You're going to think. I'm going to think about it, yeah. right? And you just let, let, let time be your you know the, the your your value to process right and if you allow that process to happen you're going to be guided one way or not right either a small uh idea will develop in you that's going to lead you this way or it will lead you in a different direction and then there has to be some element of trust or faith to say you know what i feel good about moving in this direction you don't know where it's going to take you. But this is the thing too, is as things start to happen, you have to be self, uh, self-aware uh, or uh, aware enough to connect the dots, right? Because if you don't connect those dots like from the history, then you're not going to be in tune with you know what got you here today and why did that happen and what decisions did you make in order for this to happen? And I think that's a very key element because I'm always looking at like, well, you know, because I met this person, it led to this discussion, which led to this, which led to that, which led to that. And a lot of people don't do that. They don't sit back to connect the dots. And then and then that develops, right, that mindset of being reflective and being aware. So how you talk about just going with the flow, this is a problem I faced in my first year of undergrad. Um, I think... Um, 
for me productivity was just doing a lot of work so i had these courses and i was like okay i'm just gonna do well in these courses and i would justify um spending my time all my time on just studying um yeah and i think recently just with meditation and just like like you said just take some time out and think is this what's best for me and since i've been doing that i sort of realized there are better ways to allocate my time and maybe studying 10 extra hours adds only a couple percent to my grade so so exactly. is it worth is it worth right. spending those 10 hours there yeah. and i think yeah self self reflection is such a big yeah. it's so uh, important not not only just self but self care self care right because like uh, you know e- even with my long days you know i've started to incorporate not on a daily basis but like at least sometimes i like go to the gym right early morning you know get that blood flowing because you need that energy to sustain yourself because otherwise you just get tired out and you know just from a physical aspect from a mental aspect it helps right like we all know that working out helps right um but you know you know even even if it's just like taking a day off and saying you know what i'm not going to go to the office today i'm just going to work from home at my own pace right sometimes you just need that you just need yeah. to be you just put yourself in a different environment and you you just basically like shut off people and say listen i'm working from home today only message me if if it's like a dire situation right i just want to do some stuff right and and sometimes it's non productive right but you but what what are you doing you're just recharging right your batteries because it's it's a marathon it's not a race this is an ongoing thing that's going to happen and at the end of the day if you're going to lose your health as a result of that that's that's it's more detrimental yeah. than than anything else and meditation is becoming really popular these days i feel especially among young people like for example there's this company called uh, muse that produces mm-hmm. manufactures this headband that tra- yeah. tracks your meditation yeah. based on your brain activity which yeah. i thought was pretty cool yeah there's a, there's a bunch of apps too yeah. right um, so you can track kind of uh, or you can set goals you can track uh, you know some of that stuff um you know i'm a, i'm a big fan of like uh the pedometer app right so like making sure that i get my 10000 steps in right okay, yeah. um i like using the zero app which is like a intermittent fasting app cuz that's like i find myself i'm like okay well i'm not eating as much because i don't have the time right so why don't i use that as a goal right and I'm like okay well why don't i just do intermittent fasting which is healthy which is healthy yeah. right so I'd like i spun it in a way yeah. to make be like yeah like i don't <laughs> need to have lunch today right yeah. i'm going to do like a 16 hour and 18 hour daily fast, fast yeah. and you know now i've spun it in a way that i'm like this is good for me right uh and and i'm going to focus on drinking water and less sugary drinks yeah. and no coffee and no tea and all that good stuff yeah. right so so uh you know you start to incorporate these things uh and and uh, you know in, including you know the, the 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 meditation right uh and and then so now what you've developed is is, is more of a lifestyle yeah. right? a habitual lifestyle uh that you know you are uh you know it's your way you're not adopting anyone else's right that's just kind of the way you operate and and it works best for you it works yeah. best for you exactly that's trial and error too right like there's so many things that you can do sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't it's just finding a correct routine that becomes yeah. habitual yeah. and then you're pretty much set yeah well well they do say like to create a habit it takes 21 days right okay. so okay. uh so do something consistently for 3 weeks 21 days and it should it should become part of every day like just normally like subconsciously mm-hmm And uh before we wrap up we have uh this question that we like to ask all, all of our guests and so it's 
if you were if, if uh, you, you were looking back right yeah. now at yourself in your first year <laughs> U of T uh, going into biology what would your advice be to your first year self starting out at U of T right now fresh yeah fresh into university other than switching programs <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure other than switching I, you know I don't know right well okay like I don't know about the switching program part because that's, obviously that's like the most common answer by far yeah I think everybody says switching programs yeah, yeah. <laughs> but see like like I like, like I reflect back right and I'm like well if I was in the traditional right trajectory of like BCom and then yeah I got into finance anyways would I end up here? Like, would I have taken the same route to get here? I don't know, right? So, yeah. so switching programs is not maybe the appropriate the, answer. But I, what I would say is, um, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? And you never know where it's going to take you. But I think I would have been, uh, I wouldn't have taken uh, my undergrad as seriously, right? Like, uh, I'm, I'm, I was first in my family. Uh, like immediate family to go into uh, like a, a university program and all my brothers and sisters have wow. done that now but like that's just because I was oldest uh, but like coming from immigrant parents right like it's a big deal right so you know there was this there was this mindset of you know wanting my family to be proud be proud right you wanted that validation yeah. um, and so you know there was this the, I was straddling with this thing like am I doing this for me or am I doing this for my parents like you know, I don't know, right? And so at the end of the day, I kind of went on a path that I you ended wanted. up wanted to do, right? Uh, but, you know, between high school and like, you know, finishing your four years, like, you don't know. Like, like from high school, like your, your guidance counselors try and help, but they don't really understand you. I think the only person understand. who understands yeah, you is yourself. Right. So I, like the, the advice I would give my, give back to anyone in the first year is like, like make sure that you're just doing what you want to do. Right. It doesn't matter what program that is. Right. Uh, you know, because at the end of the day, like I find, I find today like a bachelor's degree is just a bachelor's degree. You, it, there, there's so many skills that are transferable into other industries. We've created new industries in Toronto. And so like, yeah, just because you did a science degree doesn't mean that you can't work in finance, right? There's so many, like, there's so many engineers, right? That have transitioned into other careers. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they built that foundation, right? Of problem solving. Of problem know. solving, yeah. Or even like the, the simple math that you get from that degree, right? So, so I wouldn't stress too much about like, well, I'm in life sciences. I have to be a pharmacist, a dentist, or a doctor. Those are my only three paths. No, that is not the case anymore. Like, you know, people are hiring from all walks of life, uh, and people are are are, and it's and it's and it's and don't be afraid to change to make that switch. And if you are gonna make that switch, make it earlier rather than later, mm -hmm. right? Make that decision because I know a lot of people like in third year they're like, okay, I'm gonna move over to BCom. And then they would take like an extra, like they wouldn't finish a degree in four, it'd be five because they had to do all this extra coursework and then over the summer. But like you were talking about this to me in first year, like why didn't you just make the jump then when you were just doing general courses and then you could have, you know, transferred over to BCom and then specialized, right? So make those decisions quicker um, if you truly feel that you're just not in the right program and this isn't the right fit for you. And don't worry and live by your decisions, right? Like live by your decisions with respect to the outcome that happens, whether it's positive or negative, uh, because as soon as you accept that, you'll be less harsh on yourself. And, you know, you, you will then just allow life to take its course. Right. 
and you'll say, well, this is what I've been destined for. And you accept it. You're happy with that, right? You, you then become content and you're not like comparing yourself to others. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much, Mohammed. It's been great having you. Thank you, guys. I think um, people listening to this will learn about it. Really, really appreciate it. Happy to be here. And, uh, you know, if you guys need me ever again, I'm more than happy to do this. Yeah, we've really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks Thank again. you. Thanks very much, guys. Beyond the Degree is co-hosted by myself, Talal Fahum, and Angad Arnajan. Behind production and occasional co-host is Tate Claggett, and our director of marketing is Max Bayevsky. Thank you for listening, and see you soon.